Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. I'm Jesse Wolfstadt, an academic hip and knee surgeon at the University of Toronto and Mount Sinai Hospital. Kevin Saad, hip and knee surgeon at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Uh, Mark Mildren, Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. And Rylan Kagan, I'm an academic surgeon at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to have both uh, Mark and Rye here to talk a little bit about the research and talk about the annual meeting. So I can start. My study that I'm going to be presenting is pretty much mind-blowing. It turns out that if you have <laughs> fibromyalgia, after total hips, you don't do as well. This is one of those, like, I don't think anyone saw this result coming. This was, uh, you know, we got the p-values, they were significant, which again, who would have thought that if you have the fibromyalgia, you're gonna stay longer in the hospital, you're gonna take more opioids. This is just, I think this is gonna be a real game changer going forward. I mean, clearly the program committee thought there was something of value to it, or there was a significant amount of uh, money that changed hands. So, well, but. Uh, Jeremy, yes, we're not going to talk about that. But I think it is important from a, especially from a risk-based assessment standpoint, of actually having this in the data so that fibromyalgia may be something that needs to be accounted for in risk-based models. So it is something that we all know intuitively, but having actual numbers to back it up when we do go and talk to payers is something that is important. And so certainly that's something that goes into your assessment for this is not an outpatient, most, or at least not a standalone ASC outpatient most likely, or if maybe it is, and that depends on other risk factors, but can we talk a little bit about that? And then other aspects of if that changes your management, how that changes your management, or is it just a counseling the patient about kind of what to expect, their outcomes, their complications, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I guess I should preface all this with it. it was a Pearl Diver study. And if you look at some of the data about just length of stay of these patients, it's pretty striking. So like the average length of stay, I believe was 9.4 days, or the mean length of stay was 9.4 days in the hospital for these patients. Whether they should be done as an outpatient or not, I think that is probably something that can be debated. But definitely patient counseling should go in, into play with these patients about, you know, you're just not going to do as well as your peers. You are going to need opioids for longer than your peers. If you don't have the same result as, you know, the person next to you without that diagnosis, that's okay. That's normal. One more piece of that is uh, we often kind of look at these means and these numbers there and we kind of ignore the standard deviations. And one of the really impressive parts about the length of stay in this study is just looking at the standard deviation for the fibromyalgia group. And it's like, I believe it's close to 10. So these patients are all over the map. So really unpredictable. And as you're starting to think about these, predicting where patients are going, other things like that, that can be a a big player in that. You know, one of the other practical things to kind of take from the study that we looked at was dislocation rate. And dislocation rate is higher in fibromyalgia patients. Why that is, we don't know yet. Sorry to interrupt, were you able to account for other risk factors like obesity and other, you know, things so that are associated with, uh, yeah. yeah. So female gender, yes, we did account for female gender. We did not account for obesity. That is something that may be a confounder that should be looked at in the future. But just when you think about like, what's the difference between somebody with, without fibromyalgia? Why does that contribute to a higher dislocation rate? It's something that we don't know yet. And definitely some theories, but wasn't studied uh, too much in this. Can you touch upon your, your theory of maybe why? Yeah. So, and why they have I, again, I, 
this is not founded by any science whatsoever. But one theory may be... That's like most of what you Any opinion I have, yes. Um, some of it may just be, you know, if you have fibromyalgia, you are more likely to talk to a physician. So if you go talk to a physician, maybe you have a little bit of arthritis on your x-ray, you might be more likely to get a hip replacement kind of earlier in the disease process um, than some of the patients that, you know, the farmers that show up and their hip is absolutely destroyed and they're like, no, I could, I'll be fine. Their soft tissues are going to be different. And so just the soft tissue envelope around may be one thing. Another thing that may contribute to it is we did find that patients with fibromyalgia do take more opioids prior to surgery. Dr. Kagan is going to present a study as well that talks about if dislocation due to spine surgery is due to the spine surgery, or is it due to the opioids that people take after spine surgery and opioids play a big role in the dislocation risk. So that may be something that contributed to it. We did account for that, still found a higher dislocation risk, but definitely opioids before surgery may contribute to dislocation after surgery. Yeah, you can control for some things in your logistic regression and we did control for female and then opioid use, but at the same time when your population of fibromyalgia was over 90% female and then there's just staggering numbers of opioid use in these patients before the surgery, completely agree. I'm sure those things really do weigh in even if you kind of control for them. Might be a nice segue to chat about the opioid study that, uh, that Mark addressed. I love the title, Blame the Opioid, Not the Surgeon. <laughs> Maybe can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek, uh, the findings of the study, uh, a bit of the methodology. I know it'll be presented, uh, you know, it's, it's are we, we're Friday here, so we present it tomorrow in real time, but it'll be afterwards for our listeners. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we really wanted to look at the lumbar spine fusion patients. A lot of talk is about lumbar spine fusion patients and this increased risk of dislocation in that specific population. And so we kind of wanted to look at that. And and we think that one of the things that's maybe not looked at enough is just opioid use. And so when we looked at the patients who had had a prior lumbar spine fusion, and if they were on opioids at the time of surgery compared to the group that was not on opioids at the time of surgery, there was a higher risk of dislocation for the opioids. And then as kind of secondary aim, we looked at the whole population, so including patients with or without lumbar spine fusion, and then with or without opioid use, and we put some odds ratios on it to kind of look at what really was contributing to the risk of dislocation, lumbar spine fusion, or opioids, and it turns out they both contribute, but when you kind of look at those numbers, there's more of a contribution for patients on opioids. So even the patients who haven't had a lumbar spine fusion, if they're on opioids before they go in to have that hip replacement, they're at an increased risk of dislocation, suggesting that you know there's a lot with these opioids that you know we have some potential to make some difference. So I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk to Mark about a lot of us on this podcast now are in academics here in private practice. What is some advice you can give for our members who, you know, maybe graduating fellowship, having done some research, going into private practice, maybe they want to continue to do research, but they're not sure exactly how, right? So what tips can you give as someone who's been successful? How can you uh, advise? Wait, what? (laughs) Uh, Let's go back to that successful comment. Yeah, definitely not true. Honestly, I don't have a lot of tips. I'm lucky enough that our private practice group does have a PhD that will kind of coordinate research. Honestly, having Rye as just a friend was the thing that contributed most to this. So I I don't know if I can answer that, to be perfectly honest. I might be able to give an answer to that, though. I mean, I think one of the things that Mark's done really a great job of is, is he just reached out and said he wanted to be involved in the residents and doing stuff. And so he's came to OHSU and given a lecture for the residents. And just if you're in private practice and you want to do research, just reach out to your local training and say, hey, I'd love to be involved. Just like maybe I could help do a lecture. Maybe I could teach something. 
and then just say you're interested and that's how we you know started just talking about this and then get involved in the research as the next step so just reach out no i think that's a great point and just just to to make a point that people who um you become everybody comes from academics right you from training right you go through residency you go for fellowship you're involved in projects and uh, if that's something you're interested in it doesn't have to stop just because you're not in an academic institution Sure. And just being available, I guess. Just call Ryan K- Dr. Rylan Kagan <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested in research and private practice. You want to come give some lectures? <laughs> yes. I think it does speak to a larger theme with YAG, and this is sort of a shameless plug for YAG, but, but just get involved, right? Like, my involvement with YAG really was on a lark. Like, I think I got an email from AUKUS and said, hey, you know, this might be interesting to be involved with and you know put my name forward and and now I'm lucky enough to be here on this podcast and and meet people who I now consider friends and it's probably the same thing like just come to the social events that we host and you know so many people for example on our panel yesterday are just really engaging people that are open and just go and introduce yourself say hi ask them what they're up to ask if you can get involved whether you're a medical student a resident a fellow early in practice I think for the most part people are pretty open and welcoming. Absolutely. And some of it's a little grunt work. Like uh, we were just talking to Dr. Springer yesterday, who's current AUKUS president, about how he first got involved in AUKUS. He said he was reviewing abstracts, right? So there's a little bit of grunt work involved. You got to put in the time. But, you know, we really encourage everybody who's who wants to be involved to do it. Well, and that's one of the things that I've loved about being involved in the YAG is just the connections that you make. And not only does it have ramifications for your professional life, but also like you make friends. And that's important in our line of work where it can be super stressful. And not everything we do is you have the exact answer for. And so it's been nice to have people to bounce ideas off of, to commiserate with, to get support outside of kind of your microcosm of where you're at geographically. Mark, wondering if you can maybe chat about the evolution of the Augment podcast. You were you were one of the OGs, I believe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, where did it come from? Where, where do you see the future of this podcast going? Oh, I think it's in good hands. The way that I got involved, so I was a fellow at UVA. Anna was the fellow after me, and then we kind of had this idea of let's talk informally about stuff. And of course, Anna does what she does and then ran with it and she said why don't you be involved in this podcast because you're the one that doesn't sound smart and it'll bring the, the intellectual <laughs> that's not true i did want more smart. jokes though i did yeah, want more jokes, it was though. i was brought in for the jokes chad kruger was brought in and lenny were, were brought in because lenny's just a good looking man with beautiful skin chad is super smart and so those guys were like the meat of it and then there's the clown and that's me um, and so it it started and i think it started right around covid and we were fortunate enough so that they were all remote. We'll have like Anna with her uh, earphones in and some kid will climb on her lap at some point in time that we can all see. And then there's been some interesting guests. Some people take it very seriously and then other people have kind of relaxed and we've had fun with. As far as where we see it going, I don't know, you can talk to the visionary over there, Anna. Well, we, I mean, it's it's the true nature of the Young Arthroplasty Group. We gotta move on, you know? I'm aging out, we're all aging out. The, The group is designed for residents, fellows, and surgeons in their first five years of practice. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where, you know, the members of the committee who are gonna come after me and leadership will take it. I know it's hard to believe, but I will stop being on this podcast at some point. But no, and that's, like I said, that's the beauty of it is that it doesn't get stagnant because the leadership is always going to be surgeons in their first five years in practice who will always know what are the concerns of that group. I think it is a extremely valuable podcast in 
it's almost informality because the conversations that are had aren't always like the, the textbook answer. And that's what life is. And that's what practice is where it's not always, you know, we know exactly what to do and this is what the book says. And so getting some people to talk about that, I think is powerful. So hopefully the YAG podcast will continue, but I think there does need to be more uh, kind of informal talks that people can listen to and more podcasts that are done where we can have these conversations that, you know, we, it's not you're standing in front of people giving exactly what the right answer is. So you're saying we're the smart list of orthopedics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. It was really informative. And I think for our uh, listeners, they'll be uh, glad to hear uh, some of the things you brought to us today. And we'll keep moving with our next one. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.